Welcome to the tenth episode of Cuttings from the Garden of English, Sound Bites. I can still recall one of my first university lectures in English. The lecturer, swirling in his black academic gown, a foretaste of Hogwarts I'd have realised had I not been an ignorant muggle, chalked up G-H-O-T-I on the blackboard and asked us what it was. Hmm, clearly a trick question. The goatee enthusiasts among us were cautiously silent. With a flourish, he told us it was fish. The sound of G-H in cough, the sound of O in women, and the sound of T-I in nation. This was something of an epiphany for me. In one magical word, he encapsulated what, in their enthusiastic barrage of spelling rules, with numerous exceptions, my school teachers had failed to trumpet loudly. English spelling is a nightmare, and it's not your fault if you find it difficult to navigate. Many amusing rhymes by linguists and other enthusiasts have been composed to highlight these incongruities. They work better on the page than by sound alone because we can see the spelling as we inwardly hear the pronunciation. But a couple of examples will serve to highlight the oddities we've all encountered. Think of the eight different ways of pronouncing the letters O-U-G-H in thorough, though, cough, tough, brought, plough, as well as the end of the older British spelling of hiccup and the Irish loch. Or of the seven different ways of pronouncing, in my Aussie dialect at least, the O in font, front, do, go, woman, women, atom. What's more, at different times in the lives of many of these words in English, they will have been pronounced differently from my versions because nothing stays the same in a living language. Sounds, spellings, meanings all evolve. However, even if we acknowledge this, most of us are still strongly influenced by spelling in our attitude to pronunciation. Very little stays the same either in different sound contexts. If I asked you how you'd pronounce T-H-E, you might answer the, as in the dog. Or you might equally well answer the, as in the apple. Both obviously correct. It's all a matter of context of the surrounding sounds. We quite automatically say the before a consonant sound and the before a vowel sound without any consciousness of a different pronunciation in each case. Context is all. If asked how we pronounce the common verb ending spelt ed, some of us might say ed, others ed, a few adding up, or sometimes just d. I can't think of an example of the ed pronunciation. That reply was presumably affected by the spelling, by analogy with ed as in bed. The ed is clearly there in verbs such as parted, and handed, and just d is there in verbs such as hummed, rubbed, sized, begged, 
So influenced by spelling are we that we likely don't even realise that in verbs like parked, hissed, knifed, snapped, the final sound morphs into the voiceless consonant t because it is immediately preceded by a voiceless consonant. Here, k, s, f, p. A kind of linguistic peer group pressure, if you like. And many of us are likely to think we are being somehow sloppy with such pronunciations if this is pointed out. Another anecdote. A very long time ago, when I was teaching English at a girls' school in Edinburgh, I had my first lesson in one aspect of context when I planned to explain what a diphthong was. I wrote a few words with simple vowels on the board. Then I wrote D-A-Y. How do you pronounce this? I asked with a flourish. And out of the mouths of my lower fourth babes came the purest vowel sound, a longer and more closed mouth version of my own e in bed. D. No diphthong here changing from one thing to another, like my own day or a broader Aussie day. A slightly different aspect of context arose when I was asked, at what was to be my final Christmas in Edinburgh, to read one of the lessons at the school carols concert in St Giles Cathedral. Several parents asked me afterwards what had happened to my Australian accent. Pretty unconsciously, I think, under the influence of some sort of linguistic politeness, I had brought my accent closer to the Edinburgh dialect. So even our own pronunciation is not fixed in different contexts. I've been pestering several friends by asking them, without thinking too deeply, how many syllables were in selected written words. When, after the prompt answer, I re-ask the question with each word in a phrase, they usually change their answer to a lower number. The words were desperate, camera, chocolate. The first answer was much more spelling-based, our default position, I think. Which all reminded me of the relevance of a childhood poem, often referred to as the centipede's dilemma, with a psychological syndrome of similar name arising from it, I've discovered. A centipede was happy, quite, until a toad in fun said, Pray, which leg moves after which? This raised her doubts to such a pitch she fell exhausted in the ditch, not knowing how to run. Many of our natural speech habits may be impaired if we pay conscious attention to them. Let me pose another question. What is the most common vowel sound in English? If you, as I did when I first heard it, answer this question carelessly, you probably reply E with some confidence. You knew that E was the most common vowel in English. You knew, after all, that's why there are more E tiles than any other tiles in Scrabble. But the key word in the question is sound. Which vowel sound? And the answer is a word you may never even have heard of, the reduced vowel sound called schwa, which occurs often in English speech in unstressed syllables, 
Those syllables spoken a little faster and a little more quietly than stressed syllables. It is not laziness, which has the whiff of moral judgment about it, though it is often labelled as such by those obsessed with spelling. It is a natural feature of a stress-timed language like English, one in which there is approximately the same amount of time between stressed syllables. Not natural in French, on the other hand, which is a syllable-timed language, where roughly equal time is given to all syllables. Our word schwa derives from schwa, a word borrowed from Hebrew by a German linguist, Johann Schmeller, in the 19th century to describe a lightly pronounced uh sound at the end of many German words ending in E. Until then, we called it various names, the murmur vowel, the indeterminate vowel, the neutral vowel. Schwa is a brief sound, a rather feeble version of the uh sound in fun. Linguists have given it a symbol that looks like an upside-down lowercase e, uh. Using a schwa allows unstressed syllables to be said more quickly so that the main beats fall more clearly on the stressed syllables. Against this natural trend is the occasional insertion of a schwa where no syllable at all existed to draw out a word for dramatic effect as in crazy, brilliant. The spelling of this sound is very varied in normal continuous speech. In my dialect, it may be spelt with an A, as in alone, sofa. A-U in our local pronunciation of Australia. Queen Elizabeth, by contrast, always said Australia, with an E in system, enough, an ER at the end of banker, or an OR at the end of error, UR at the beginning of survive, I in easily, and both eyes in imagine, O in galloping, and obstruct. U in circus and album, even Y in vinyl, and O-U-G-H in thorough. Or it may not be in the spelling at all, as in rhythm, where we insert one to create a second syllable for ease. In all these examples, the schwa sound occurs in an unstressed syllable, a quickly swallowed syllable, galloping, enough album. In New Zealand English and in Scottish English, the vowel Aussies use in fish is instead a schwa, fish. And so, unlike us, Kiwis and Scots use schwas in stressed syllables as well as unstressed. For them, fish and chips has three schwas. For us, there is only one in the middle word, fish and chips. Aussie author Alex Buzo's wonderfully titled 1994 Kiwiese, A Guide, A Dictionary, A Shearing of Insights, celebrates the differences in trans-Tasman pronunciations. 
When sounding out individual words, however, removing them from any context, we may give a fuller sound to some vowels than we do in normal continuous speech. For example, what country did you say you came from? I didn't quite hear. Australia, possibly saying the AU like the O in ostrich and the final A more like the first O in onion to be clearer than our normal pronunciation with a schwa at the beginning and the end, Australia. Sometimes a possible schwa syllable following a syllable that bears the main stress is dropped altogether in free-running speech when it is followed by another schwa. Thus, the following words are more commonly pronounced with only two syllables rather than the possible three suggested by the spelling and encouraged in my spellbound childhood. Desperate rather than desperate. And different. Chocolate. Camera. We've seen in previous episodes how feeling comfortable with language is a powerful motivator of language choices, such as the rather absurd preference for calling asparagus sparrowgrass. With comfort in mind, English speakers sometimes stick in an extra schwa syllable to help bust up difficult consonant clusters, leading to so-called uneducated pronunciations. We regard the inserted schwa in rhythm as quite acceptable, but not the same process that makes athlete into athlete, nuclear into nuclear, and film into film. Interestingly, linguist David Crystal finds evidence in Shakespeare's text of Romeo and Juliet that film was exactly how the word was pronounced in about 1600. Standard today and barbaric tomorrow, or the reverse, is a common path in language. As I discovered was the case after an irate friend texted me to ask whether I shared his abhorrence of the increased use of gotten he had observed in Aussie English, which he saw as yet another creeping Americanization of our language. In the 18th century, Kate Burridge's Weeds in the Garden of English informed me, it was the standard approved form of the past participle, and the use of got in its place was heartily condemned by the author of the first grammar of the English language. As toddlers, we learn to say words like meow when we see a cat and woof when we see a dog. And later in primary school, we learn the term onomatopoeia for words that seem at least to some degree to mimic the sound described. Those comic book words like pow and bam, as well as animal sounds. We can all understand why Jonathan Swift, in his novel Gulliver's Travels, called the race of intelligent horses huonims, pronounced to suggest the gentle sound of whinnying horses. Several supposedly onomatopoeic words, however, don't seem very convincing. Whose action of laughing sounds like ha-ha or tee-hee? But with repetition over time, these words have become perfectly acceptable ways of representing laughter. In less obvious ways, 
some words do seem to echo their meaning. We call this sound symbolism. Sometimes this symbolism is very similar even in unrelated languages, sometimes quite language-specific. The way our mouth makes vowel sounds, how open it is, where the tongue touches another part of the mouth, what our lips do, affects the kind of sound produced. Which word in each of the following pairs sounds smaller, the first or the second? Chip, chop, chink, chunk, slit, slot. Yes, the first one, which uses a so-called front vowel, where the tongue is to the front of the mouth, chip, chink, slit, while the second uses a back vowel, where the tongue is to the back of the mouth, chop, chunk, slot. The lips play an important part too. They are more closed and spread in the first item, more open and rounded in the second. It's no surprise then that itsy-bitsy and teeny-weeny suggest something small, or that a more open-mouthed humpty-dumpty suggests something larger, or that a small bell tinkles while a large bell tolls. Consonants also seem, at times, to mimic sounds. Plosive consonants, think explosive, involve a blockage of air by lips, teeth or palate, followed by a sudden release of air. Especially when produced with voice, these sounds at the beginning of a word, b, d, g, often suggest something loud or violent, bang, biff, blast, blare, burst, boom, bark. Their voiceless equivalents, p, t, k, are normally associated with gentler sounds, puff, click, tuttered, tittered, ping. Some sort of rapid movement seems to be suggested by the consonant cluster FL in flutter, flicker, fling, flip, flap, flight, fleeting, flitting, flinch, flocking, flurry. GL is associated with light in gleam, glimmer, glint, glitter, glow, glister, glitzy, glossy, glary, but with a sense of stickiness in glue, glob, glutinous, glycerin, gluggy. Some SL words suggest wetness and a sliding movement, Slime, slippery, slop, slurry, slug, sludge, slurp. Others suggest attack, slaughter, slash, slam, slug, slay, slap. It's possible these groups of similarities may be just coincidences, subgroups you might find in any large group, or groups created from a common root. Maybe. Maybe humans need to find meaning in sounds. Writers certainly exploit sound symbolism all the time. Consider the rapid, light and happy movement in these four lines from Browning's The Pied Piper of Hamelin. There was a rustling that seemed like a bustling of merry crowds justling at pitching and hustling. Small feet were pattering, wooden shoes clattering, little hands clapping and little tongues chattering. And in Jabberwocky, 
Lewis Carroll's famous so-called nonsense poem, some of his made-up words are far from nonsensical and have made it into standard dictionaries because they were so suggestive of meaning. We have chortled, a blend of chuckled and snorted, galumphing, a blend of galloping and triumph, and slithy, a blend of slimy and lithe. The interplay between sound, spelling and meaning is quite fascinating if you can avoid any ditches.